Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. I can see that. I'm a little sad because I got to go back to the Bay Area today, man. It's been fun hanging out with you guys and just to get to know you all and be in some of your classes and interacting with some of you one-on-one. I just also became a big fan of Taylor, by the way, Uh, and I'm going to be following him on YouTube and not going to miss the Tuesdays with Taylor. I'm going to try to help make that famous. (laughs) But hey, it's, it's just great that... We could all gather together like this because this is something we missed back in California. We're still sort of in this lockdown mode. So you guys can pray for that. And uh, let me uh, read God's word for us today. You know, we're going to continue in our prayer that Jesus prayed for us. We're going to skip and go to the last part of his prayer. If you have your Bibles or your iPhones, you can follow me on John 17, verse 20 onwards. And this is what he prays for. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, if you recollect our previous chapel's message where I shared the first part, Jesus prays, he prays for God's glory. And secondly, in the next part, which we did not read today, he prays for holiness. He prays for the sanctification of his disciples. Because he knows right after he is nailed on the cross, they're going to experience persecution and flee. And it's important that God keeps them because it is through their words that he gave them that they have to pass on to the world that God is going to be glorified. And all his disciples, except for Judas, survived the persecution in doubts and scattering. They regroup, they witness the resurrected Christ, and they go on to share about him to the ends of the world, including Apostle Thomas, who came all the way to India, and he was martyred right in my hometown of Chennai. Christianity in India is actually 2,000 years ago, even before William Carey landed on the shores. And there is a sect that's still alive that's continuing the tradition. And I can't even believe how that was possible by the doubting Thomas. You know why? Because Jesus prayed for him and everybody else. 
And his disciples survived that. And because of that, we have this word. And it is encouraging to see God already answered the prayer of Jesus. And now he comes and moves on to pray for those who will respond to those words as they are being proclaimed all over the world and come to believe him. And that includes you and me today. Praise for God's glory. The first part, praise for holiness. That his disciples will be set apart, sanctified in the second part. And lastly, what is he praying for you and me? He's not praying for material wealth and prosperity and to live happily ever after. The one thing Jesus is praying for is love expressing itself through unity. You know, the one word that keeps coming again and again is the word one. That they may be one, that we are one, that they may be one like we are one. Again and again, that's what is tugging his heart as he is thinking far ahead and praying for us. You know, what a great framework of prayer. When we start praying, we start praying with things literally weighing us down on our mind. What we think is important for us, our glory. But Jesus prays this amazing prayer and is finishing it by praying for love to bind you and me. And we know what love is. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul unpacks love for us. Love is not a feeling. You know, all the words that are used to define love are action verbs. Love is active. It's dynamic. It's, love does not simply feel patient. It is. It practices patience. Love does not simply have kind things, it does kind things to one another. Love does not simply recognize the truth, it rejoices in the truth. And we are going to need that kind of love to be practiced between one another to experience that unity. You know, this pandemic is recreating and reshaping the landscape of churches all over the world. And the Lausanne movement that met a couple of weeks ago, it's a global body of missiologists who get together to see how can we best prepare for what's next. And all around the world, there was a converging thought that if the church is going to be missional in the next... Once this pandemic is over, it is going to have to stop being an individual independent church and think of a network of churches and organizations with a big vision for their city and for the world. The new mission is going to be to reach our cities and to reach our neighborhoods and to reach the ends of the world. It is going to involve a network of churches and leaders coming together. And that doesn't happen overnight. It starts with building one-on-one -on -one relationships. And the foundation of that is love. So you think Jesus did not know this pandemic is going to happen. It's like, oops, what do I do now? COVID-19. He saw through that. He's actually even prayed through this pandemic for you and me. And he has a great plan for his church. And guess what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because he's going to unite you and me through love to go and bring his message to a world that is even more desperately going to need it. Amen? This is why I love preaching in a black church. By now they'll be like coming up here and saying, Amen, brother, and dancing with me. <laughs> 
The first thing he says, what's going to be the basis of this unity? He says, unite them through, in love through your word. You know, the gospel is the one that needs to unite us. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one can unite imperfect people like you and me together to experience this love. And it actually happens dramatically in Acts chapter 2, right after that, where we see people from all over the world who are so different, they are gathered together, and guess what they hear? The word of God in their own languages. And there is that instant unity. What was disrupted in the Tower of Babel is being undone, and God redemptively unites them in Acts chapter 2. That is Pentecost. Because Jesus said, now this is what the world needs to hear and see. And that visible demonstration of people from all countries gathering together and being united, that was the explosive energy to launch off the New Testament church. And that's the same thing the world needs right now. We need to learn to begin to love one another. You know, often we, it's easy for us to become friends with people who have same interests as us, who have same personality as us, who even think like us and have uh, the same socioeconomic status, the same ethnicity. That can be a bubble, but really what God is wanting us to do is to break out of those boundaries and intentionally build friendship with someone who is different from us. You know, I'm so blessed and privileged because I live in the Silicon Valley, which has people from all over the world. I have friends who are really dear friends from 10 different ethnicities. German, Chinese, Korean, African, Latino, African-American. And first of all, we are a band of brothers, we are pastors, but we really love one another. And because we really love one another, we can say hard things to one another. And they have stretched me, they have helped me see my blind spots, and I have done the same. And our friendship has gotten richer, and our churches have done great stuff together. That's been a blessing and a witness because of those relationships. But it's not going to be easy. You're going to step on each other's toes every now and then. You're going to be poking each other every now and then. But then, when you're able to see that the gospel binds us and it's bigger than us, it's a blessing. Secondly, he says, unite them in love by replacing their sin with your glory. He says, the glory that you have given me in verse 20, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. You know, love in any relationship and friendship is not going to be possible if we are only concerned about our glory. Unity is not possible if we are only concerned about our glory all the time. And why is that? Because sin makes us think only about us and our glory. Think about the first sin in the Garden of Eden that destroyed the unity and love between God and us. You know, Satan said to him, what did Satan tell her? You can be like God. You're important. You can be in charge. You can have control. You can have power. You can do what you want. And she took the bait. And now that unity is disrupted. You know, when I say in a relationship, 
I am important and my needs are important and my issues are important and that's my glory. And I say, oh, they don't understand. No one understands. I will have to be heard. I need to, I'm right. I'm a good person. That's me taking and talking about my glory. But until we get to this place where we are able to let our significance aside and take the servant leadership heart of Jesus and look at the other person from their perspective, true love cannot blossom. And that's something Jesus prays for. He knows it's hard, and he's prays for us. And, and thirdly, so he's unite them in love by empowering them with the same mission. He says in verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You know, what makes the Trinity perfectly one? There are two things that make the Trinity perfectly one, to see the unity in the Trinity, the motive and mission. You know, in the past 10, 20 years, the Lausanne movement of missiologists came up with the focus of Missio Dei as the concept. I spoke of this in one of your classes. The Missio Dei is basically the mission of God, the missional heart of God with which God came into this world to redeem you and me and is now out to redeem all nations. And now they are sensing that this has shifted where now it's not the Missio Dei, it is Mortis Dei. That means the move of God. Because God is right now moving through people who are moving in this world. And that's how his mission is expanding. And that's how, like I even spoke previously, the kingdom of God is going to be established by people who are going from everywhere to everywhere, bringing the good news of the gospel with them. See, but that, there is that unity in that mission, and it's because of that Christ was willing to voluntarily come into this world and give his life for you and me. And if we need to be united in love, we need to be on the same mission. It shouldn't be the mission of you and me wanting to build my kingdom, my little territory. It's going to be about building God's kingdom. It's going to be about building these friendships with the intention of doing God's work. And that's what we see modeled in several relationships in Scripture. Moses and Aaron, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Timothy. How those relationships came together and God did great things through them. Because guess what? People are so attracted to it. You know, like I was sharing, one of my dear friends, um, Susang Park. You know, he has a church plant. It's a Korean-American church plant. And because of our friendship, our churches got to do a lot of stuff together. And they have invested themselves for seven years in trying to reach Paiute Indians in Bishop Reservation in Central California. And since the past three years, our church has been able to interact and partner with them, and we've been sending people to Paiute Reservation. And guess what? It's a very broken place when you go there. But once the people in the reservation see these two people, you know, there's a bunch of Koreans, there's a bunch of Indians and Filipinos and, and, and some, you know, Caucasian brothers. They just flock the place for the time that we are there. And they say, we love this, we love that. 
you guys are friends. We love that. You guys come as families. Because as f- we just go encourage whole families to go. You know, it's not just a youth or a kid's thing. Because they don't have families. Their whole need is lack of fathers. And, and they've heard the gospel preached to them in several ways, in several times, through several means. But this visible demonstration of the unity within the body of Christ, that's the powerful apologetic the world needs right now. The biggest apologetic of our need today is not in the proof in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not in making the gospel being a reasonable one. The biggest apologetic the world needs right now is that you and me and people from all nations can truly love one another. And there is the story of my other pastor friend who is African-American, had a church plant in Oakland, California. And after two years, he got to a, a, a meeting of the city council, and then the pastors got together, and they, they were challenged, what can you do different to reach and demonstrate the love of Christ? And there was this young, white, millennial church planter who got up and went to him and said, brother, I want our churches to merge together. And there was this great merger that happened between this African-American, older, poor, poorer church and this younger Caucasian millennial church and they merged together and they planted a church and they wanted to name it the Spectrum Church but we had already taken that name. (laughs) And so they called themselves the Tapestry Church and guess what? The day they launched their church, it made headlines in San Francisco Chronicle which is one of the most liberal left-wing newspapers of the area, with both of their pictures, they were all over on TV, and I called Bernard and said, bro, you became famous overnight. (laughs) Because even to an unbelieving world, they see that it's impossible with all the racial tensions, how can a white church and a black church actually coexist? It just baffles their mind. That's the apologetic, my friends. And Jesus prayed for it, and he's actually doing it. And lastly, he says, unite them in love by helping them to experience and express your love. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The last verse, he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, the biggest thing at the end is only loved people can love people. Do you know that Jesus actually loves you? And if we are not very sure about that love is when we try to find that love in our insecurities that come up that disrupt all these relationships and make loving one another really You know, you cannot love others until you have experienced that unconditional love of Christ deep down in your heart. You know, there was a couple who came to us um, a few months ago, and they were wanting to explore adoption, and they'd heard that we had adopted a couple of kids, and they had another biological kid, and, and they came to us and said, 
you know, we want to get into adoption, but we're really not sure if we are ready because we are afraid that we will love our biological kid more than the adopted child. And that was their biggest fear, and that's the biggest fear of many parents who try to get into adoption. But in reality, what happens is it's kind of the other way around. When, you really, when they come into your life, they bless you immensely in such a big way. You know, most of the time, I tend to tease my daughter, she's our biological daughter, that I, t I actually love uh, my adopted daughter more than her, you know, just to poke her around. And, and they both, you know, it doesn't matter, their age group is a little longer, they're like 15, uh, th 13 years apart, but girls are girls, they still fight. <laughs> but... She knows that she is incredibly loved in us, and that was something that significantly helped her overcome the trauma she had gone through. Receiving that unconditional love was able to wipe away three years of tremendous trauma that as a child she went through. Love is powerful, friends, and that's the reason Jesus closes his prayer with wanting to love you and me. I'm going to stop here and invite Derek to join us to see how we can apply some of these things in our life. And as he walks up, my encouragement to us would be, maybe pray like this, you know, and to ask ourselves, how is my prayer pattern? Try to journal not what you pray, but how you pray. And see, what is the pattern of my prayer? What am I starting my prayer with? Am I starting my prayer with my glory or God's glory? Am I starting my prayer with wanting to think and talk about building my kingdom and my life and my career or God's kingdom and God's glory? Am I having in my prayer thoughts about how to restore my broken friendships with my brothers and sisters? Or am I just still coiled up in my own individual bubble? and pray that God will reveal his vision to use you. Thank you, JP. Why don't you pull your chair in a little bit here. Gabe, thanks for getting these up here. Thank you for your, your word today. As Connor said, it's been a blessing to have you uh, speak into our lives as a college, uh, into our classroom, um, here on the stage. Thank you. Well, thank you, Derek. Uh, and, it's been uh, a pleasure and honor. JP will be around for lunch today, and then he's going to be in class, and he's got to catch a flight right after that class this afternoon. JP, our mission within the larger mission of God, the college's mission, is that we equip servant leaders for the church so that through the church, the gospel is spread globally, worldwide. So what, what role do you see servant leaders play in establishing unity as they lead in the church, mm -hmm. in a really fractured society. What role do servant leaders in the church play in establishing unity? Could be in the church, socially, outside the church. What role do servant leaders play in that? You know, servant leadership, I think, is very powerful when it is seen visibly. And it starts, I think, by, as leaders, seeing and hearing those who are usually not seen and heard. And that is one of the characteristics of a servant leader. And as I look around, especially in a place like Silicon Valley where it is so diverse, it begins with servant leaders including those who have not been included mm. 
in the leadership. It, it, it always has to start from the top. You know, mm. whether it is a church that you lead or an organization you lead or a business you lead, when, when they see that as leaders, you're, you're involving and bringing in other leaders who are not being given those opportunities before mm. and treating them co-equally, mm-hmm. that's a wonderful experience. So let's take it then outside the church context to collaborating servant leaders establishing collaborative bridges into society where they don't have the same Christian worldview, they don't understand the truth that, is, that we're guided by. How do servant leaders establish unity into those contexts, JP? Well, that's a great question, Derek. I think with uh, those who are not inside the church and outside, there is always the concept of common grace and, and the mm-hmm. need. There is brokenness in, in the world around mm-hmm. us. And, and every zip code, like I was sharing in the leadership evening, has its own unique issues. And, and we can partner with them to show that we truly love and care and, and, and offer our services. Like, you know, I'm part of this organization called Team Aid. Uh, the, what they do is they actually help transport dead people back to their hometowns of immigrants. Hmm. That's all they do. And none of them are Christians. But I was, when I heard that mission and it was awesome, I'm like, this is what the church should be doing. Hmm. And we were not. And, and so just jumping in and being a servant leader and, and you know, putting ourselves under the authority of others that we are not used to is very powerful. Mm. And that catches their attention. And the person who leads that organization is an atheist. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. <laughs> and I was volunteering with them for the first couple of years, and then he actually invited me to be on board. And though he knows I'm a pastor and a Christian, and, and he said, well, I appreciate that servant heart that you have done, because we have helped families that go through trauma and helping these tender moments being respectful for their loved ones. So as a Christian leader, you're willing to, to serve alongside an atheist. Yeah, absolutely. Because of a common human need. And, and that is powerful for them. Is that a compromise of anything? Absolutely no okay. compromise because I, t- I tell him very explicitly, hey, I believe in God and, and this is the <laughs> gospel. And it has actually helped him to share some of his struggles with mm-hmm. me over time. And he, he, there is a trust he has built with me. And we have other religious leaders too. There are Sikhs, there are Buddhists, there are Hindus, there are Jews. Hmm. And, and I, I can see that when we show that servant leadership, it, it's very attractive to the world. So if the leader of a church is doing the sorts of thing that you're doing with that atheist, then how does that affect the church? What's the church see and how do they learn, what do they learn from you as they watch you? Well, they are being inspired to step up and volunteer in ways they hmm. could in their own neighborhoods. And some of them have helped with the families we help in our areas when they lose a loved one. And that's actually helped them bridge some friendships with non-Christians. Hmm. And, and this is a powerful moment. You know, it's a very significant moment. And it's an opportunity to witness the love of Christ. Hmm. So it all starts with servant leadership saying, it's okay if I'm not given the leadership. It's okay if, you know, he doesn't agree with me. But I can draw my boundaries and still serve with a common with a common grace yeah because that's what the bible says god gives rain and and uh, sunshine to even the wicked well thanks jp thanks for pursuing that with me a little bit here's a second question it kind of pivots out of it a little bit think think multicultural with me for a moment 
share how your global perspective, mm -hmm. how your personal global perspective shapes your local perspective. How does that work? I think, um, you know, being, you know, having lived in the East and the West and having an appreciation for both, you know, like I remember my prof, uh, Sherwood Lingenfelter at Fuller would say, you know, every culture has its prison and its palace. Mm -hmm. and, and bringing both together has really helped me understand that um, the world, they call it global, right? So no longer... The global. The world. global, the global and the local yeah. have combined together. To have a global perspective, there needs to be equality mm. in, in relationships. And too often I see, um, you know, when we go, whether you go on short-term mission trips or go to another country to serve, gone are the days where you kind of think like, I'm, I'm kind of the Messiah, I'm going to come and save mm. you. And, and you, you go with that mindset, it just disrupts all partnerships. So I think right now, having a, uh, a global awareness, a cross-cultural intelligence, as mm. I would call it, is very significant in, in forging those relationships and moving the kingdom's perspective. So it may be a little easier for you, and we heard you're in the Bay Area, would you say 60 different, eth or 90, 90 different yeah. ethnicities? Nations, yeah. All right, so that isn't necessarily true in mm -hmm. the Northwest, so I can how that. does that work for us? Well, like I said, you know, my biggest culture shock was not moving from India to Germany or Germany to California. My biggest culture shock was moving from California to Idaho because <laughs> I think Californians <laughs> and Idaho people are like, you know, you could call them as, you know, British and Russians. <laughs> You may look alike, but there's so many shades of, you know, cultural differences. And Texas, they say, is its own country, you know. Mm -hmm. Texans are so proud about their, their land. And, and so when you get together, it's the same forces that are at play. Mm. Whether it's between different ethnicities or people from different micro-subcultural groups, you're going to have to use the same loving one another concepts and, and, and you're going to offend each other, but you're also going to have to learn to stretch and grow. And I would say it's not restricted to just ethnic mm -hmm. diversity. It's, it, it's, it's about all kinds of diversity. And the second factor is um, because of this pandemic, yeah. there's going to be a reshaping of things, and people are moving all around. Californians are leaving California, and, and guess where they are coming? Yeah, yeah. Idaho is going yeah, to change, man. Potatoes. Like I said yesterday, <laughs> and also in Texas. So this is where, so you are going to have them right here. It may not have been like that so far, but it's going to be soon. JP shared with me that in the Silicon Valley high-tech area, the, many of them, it's very expensive to live in the Bay Area, and many of them in the tech world are looking for other places to move to, and the Northwest is on their radar. So we may have a very multi-ethnic, multicultural neighbor move into our area. Absolutely, and I was just at Professor Harrod's house. He told me there is a new Hindu temple in Boise, mm. Idaho. I bet you never had that 20 years ago. Mm -mm. And, and so when they move, the diversity is going to happen, and you're going to be forced to see them as neighbors mm. and, and, and really find ways to build those friendships. And it, I think it's good to start thinking about it now. Yeah. And a good way for that would be when you do those short-term mission trips, which I so appreciate about BBC, mm -hmm. that you encourage that. It's big on your thing. And, and that's where you get stretched and exposed and, you know, God gives that passion.
And that will help us be servant leaders in our churches, won't it? Absolutely. I mean, when you go there and you see, I think when we mostly go to these places, we think, okay, we're going to go and, and fix something. But you don't, we don't realize God is already at work in many of those places. Right. And when you go there and you see those things and, and, and you receive it, it really stretches you. And you mm. bring that back and, and, and you bless it. I mean, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary for a long time in India. Actually, in my hometown of Chennai, he was the mm. bishop of the Anglican Diocese. But his successful years were after he returned to the United States. Mm. And he wrote the book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. So he gained a global perspective, and that changed his American ministry? Absolutely, and it huh. has impacted uh, churches and how they cool. think about missions. Cool. So, so I think it's, it's rich yeah. having that you know, global experience. It's a part of our mission statement that we equip servant leaders for the church to spread the gospel worldwide. Amen. So, Amen JP, thank you for sharing your heart, your expertise, your passion um, some practical things for us to think through. Why don't we pray together before we all depart, just thinking about that and our role in this. Can I just uh, share a quote as, as we close, yes. you know, by William Carey, just as a blessing to all of you guys. One of my favorite quotes of him is, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect so, great things expect from God. Expect great things from God and attempt, attempt great, great things, things for, for God. God. So that's my blessing mm. for you guys. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church, where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.